This morning we are coming to Acts chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 28. But let me just say that as we study this, one of the things that's really difficult about just putting um, just 12 through 28, you know, you've got 17, roughly 16, 17 verses in, in this text or in your bulletin is that there's a lot going on around this text. So you, you don't really get the sense just of this text just from reading it. Um, so if you do have a Bible, even on your phone or um, in your hand, like a real Bible, they exist. Um, I would encourage you to do that. We'll be looking at another, a couple of other texts just for your interest. But our, our series, we're looking at verses 12 through 28. Um, and by, by reminder, we, we, last week we studied Paul in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. In the beginning of this uh, section, this reading, we also will find Paul in Corinth or Achaia. Achaia would be like this, the region and Corinth would be the city. Kind of like Little Rock is in the region of Arkansas. Same thing, and Corinth is in the region of Archaea. So here now the reading of God's word, starting in verse, uh, oh, and look at this. It got cut off. I'm so sorry. So I'm going to read it from, from, from the Bible, and then you guys can follow along. Verses 12 through 28. Again, let me encourage you to have a Bible or your phone on hand. Hear now God's word. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, remember that's the region, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's where Paul was, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, one of the most fascinating things of my childhood, and perhaps you can relate to this, was panning for gold. Have you ever panned for gold? You know, your parents, you see this little uh, 
uh, advertisement on these billboards uh, as you're on your road trips, and it's like pan for gold, and it's like buy a creek bed, and, and you go and you, you give your money, and they teach you how to pan for gold and how to do this. And I was always fascinated by this, and you could probably understand why, because the riches of finding gold was at my fingertips. I mean, I could be rich. I could buy a Nintendo. I could do some things with this gold. And I always thought, I, I kid you not, and it, it took me too late in my life to realize that the gold that you could find painting for gold wasn't like a good old like, nugget of gold. Like, I thought you could find like this like, solid piece of gold. Like, maybe like, if you mine, you could find these gold nuggets that are as big as what I've got right here. I mean, just as big as me. That's what I thought. Come to find out, though, painting for gold and sluicing for gold, it is messy. And you ain't finding big old chunks at all. You're finding little flakes of gold. And you can't buy Nintendos with it, and you can't, you can't, you can't do what you want to do with it. It is, it is dirty, messy, and it is hard. Digging for gold, painting for gold is hard. Now, I, I say this story because I think there's a similarity between digging for gold and studying God's word. Both are hard. There's a lot you have to understand. There's a lot you have to go through. And it's like, man, this is a lot of work for a little bit of reward. But here's the thing. We actually shouldn't give up if we can't see the value in God's word. We got to keep digging. And there's a reason why people in the 1840s moved to California. Because people were experiencing great riches from the gold rush that happened. And this morning, I want to compel you on this gold rush to study God's word that you might see the great value of God's word. Now, in this particular reading of God's word, I think it is, it's actually quite difficult for us to see the value in what we just read. There, there's three different scenes, which it's really hard for us to really grasp, like, what's going on here? You've seen one where Paul is in Achaia, and, and the Jews are attacking him, but then they don't attack him, and then they turn on this guy named Sosthenes, and then that's it. And then the scene two, it's just a travel itinerary. Paul going to different places. And, and then scene three, we, we see this guy named Apollos. Like, where's, where's the grace? Where's the, the, the miracles? Where's like the easy stuff that we can just pull out and be like, wow, our God is so amazing. And, and God is incredible. God wasn't even mentioned in this. Other than like, he, Apollos knew of Jesus in the way of the Lord. It's just all descriptions and things like this. Where's the value in this? Well, friends, we're going to dig for gold. And we're going we're gonna to get at the beauty and the value that our text that we have today has for you. Now, I've done the digging this week. And I'm going to give you guys not flakes. I'm going to give you nuggets, okay? I'm going to give you three nuggets from this text, three valuable pieces of information of God and how we are called to live that will bless you and your life. So here we go. I've got the nuggets. I'm giving to you one by one. The first nugget that I'm going to give to you is a nugget that I'm calling faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, I want you to go to the first scene. We're going we're gonna to unpack this scene a little bit so that you might see what I mean, the value of faithfulness from this particular text. In this scene, the Jews of Corinth approached the proconsul, which is the governor of Achaia, Gallio, and they asked if they would do something about Paul. 
Now, Paul, according to them, was preaching a word that was antithetical to the law, and they were getting frustrated with him. And they went to him, and they said, this guy's causing a lot of unrest amongst us, and we want to kill him. Will you do something about him? Now, if you have kind of like your Bible lenses on, does this sound familiar to someone else in the New Testament? Someone else who was accused of preaching against the law? Someone else who came and frustrated the Jews that they went to the proconsul and tried to have him dealt with? It should help you think about Jesus, and that's, of course, who I'm talking about. Jesus is always the answer in church, okay? Now, this is not what I want you to focus on because the story changes. Gallio, unlike Pilate, doesn't fulfill their request. He actually denies it, and he sends them on their way. And they turn their attention to Sosthenes, and they beat the living pulp out of him. It's pretty sad. That's probably what they were going to do to Paul. But Paul was saved. Now, we could take it and compare Paul to Jesus, and I think we could get something out of it. But that's not, I think, what the most important practical reality for us in this text is. The most important thing that we have to see in this text actually comes when we read verses 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 18. And I know it's not printed for you in your bulletin, but let me read to you what this text says, because this gives us the context for the nugget of faithfulness. Let me read verses 9, 10, 11 from chapter 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God came to Paul in a vision, and he said, do not be afraid. No one's going to attack you. And in verse 12, what's happening? The Jews are trying to attack him. Galileo shuts it down. What do we learn? God is faithful to his word. Paul was not harmed. You see, right here, we see the faithfulness of God to his word. No one's going to touch you, Paul. So don't be afraid. And no one touches him. Nobody. And he goes on his way. My friends, here we have this beautiful nugget, this valuable nugget of God's faithfulness. Do you know how valuable God's faithfulness to his word is to you and I? Perhaps let me illustrate it in a negative way. One of the things that I loved when I was younger, especially in high school, middle school, was when my dad would tell me, hey, I'm coming to your sporting event game today. And I was like, yes, I'd love to perform for my dad. I'd love for him to see me, and I'd love for him to delight in me, and he's going to come to my game. And my dad is a wonderful man. But it's the occasions when he promises that he's going to be there and then when I look up into this crowd and I don't see my dad, where the pain comes and sets in. Now, my dad, truly, he, wants to, he wanted to be at everything, and it, it, there was no ill intent. Sometimes get caught up at work, things like happen. But the pain of my dad not being able to feel, fulfill his words could be felt deeply. So let me ask you again, do you know how valuable the faithfulness of God to his word is? Because my friends, there is arguably nothing more valuable to us than God being faithful to his word. God cannot 
life. The Bible is filled with the promises that God has given to his people. And it is our duty to read those promises and to trust them. But we don't. But we should. Because God is faithful to his word. He cannot lie. For, let's just consider this one. To a, to a weary and broken world, to a weary soul, if this is who you are, consider the promise of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary, and what? I will give you rest. You tired? Here is the promise of God to us. I will give you rest. Will God not give you rest? He will indeed. I mean, I'm going on this trip to Florida this week, and I'm, I'm, I'm for spring break. I'm so excited. And I'm thinking, I am going to be relaxing and have a good time. But I had to remember, the, Flo the Florida sunshine, the warmth, and I'm trying to rub it in a little bit here, okay? <laughs> I, no shame. It ultimately is not going to give me rest. What's going to give me rest is God. And of course, he uses means like warm sunshine and things like that and family. He does. But ultimately, it's the Lord. And what I want you to see is this. The value of, of, of seeing this text and how God's faithfulness comes out, it's put before us. And I put it before you to say, trust God. He is faithful. He is faithful to his word. Friends, trust it. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. That we should pull right out of this text from this scene. We got another scene to go to. And I got more gold to give to you. More gold to give to you. So you've looked at the first nugget, which is faithfulness. The second nugget that I'm giving to you is a nugget called connected. You're like, what? Connected? Well, let's look at scene two. Scene two can be found in verses 18 through 23. And this is in your bulletin. And if you want to follow along, that's fine. But here, here we go. Following his days in Corinth, Paul departs for Syria with Priscilla and Aquila, his, his kind of friends and his, his comrades from Corinth. Now they head to Syria, and then they go to Centre, where Paul cuts his hair because of a vow he made. Now we're not giving more details than what I just said right there, but this is likely a Nazarite vow that Paul had taken, and a Nazarite vow was taken from Numbers chapter 6, was rooted in Old Testament realities and, and life. They would take vows, and if they broke those vows, they would cut their hair. So that's all we're given. Now, when they get to Ephesus, because they leave Centre, they go to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila stay, and then Paul sets sail to Jerusalem via Caesarea. Thank you. Now, you might be going, it goes to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that in the text. I understand that. But, when, but the way that it's said, he goes and visits the church, and then he goes down to Antioch. This idea of going up, and then going down is always in relation to Jerusalem. And Caesarea was a port off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so he went there and then he just traversed to Jerusalem where he visits the church. And then he goes down to Antioch. Now, of course, we see a travel itinerary. I, I mean, I could give you my travel itinerary to Florida this week and you'd be like, so what? Like, good, you go to the Atlanta airport. What good is that to me? There is no value to me in watching you go to Florida. Good for you and you know, maybe some other words towards me for sharing that with you. <laughs> so what value do we have of a travel itinerary? Is there any value in seeing this travel itinerary? And I'm telling you there is. 
there is value in this travel itinerary. And there's value because we, we, we get to see what Paul does and where he goes. And what we see by what Paul does and where he goes is that he's incredibly connected. He is connected to his Jewish faith, and he is connected to the church as a whole. Two things. He's connected to his Judaism. Remember, he takes this vow, a Nazarite vow. He cuts his hair. Numbers chapter 6. He is still a Jew. And, 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 and if you think about it, what is Paul getting into trouble with in Corinth? Who is he getting in trouble with? Is it the Romans? No, it's the Jews. They're mad at him. And so we can easily think, oh, there's going to be this disconnect between Paul and Judaism, that he's going to try to like separate himself from his Judaism. But that's not what he does. He is still connected to his Judaism. He just sees his Judaism fulfilled in Jesus. He's still connected to his Judaism. But he also is connected to the church. I mean, there's not a more zealous person in the New Testament than Paul. This man is on it. He, is, he goes after it. And it's easy to think Paul is this lone ranger, that he is just on his own. He does whatever he wants. But look at what he does. He visits all these different churches all throughout the known world at this time. And he goes to Jerusalem, which in Acts 15 had already made a, a, made a decree about how the, how the word was to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. And then he goes back to Antioch, which is his home base. Paul is deeply connected to the church. So this, this what Paul does and where he goes provides us a valuable insight to our faith. And the valuable insight to our faith, that it is how it is to be practiced, is in two different ways. Our faith is rooted, and our faith is communal. Our faith is rooted in the Old Testament. We are not some cult that just came up out of nothing. Christians are rooted in history. Paul didn't see Christianity and Judaism opposed to one another. He didn't try to separate himself. No, he still embraced the Old Testament. Now, he saw things differently, which is why the Jews got mad at him for the law. But he saw the faith of, of, of the Jesus in Jesus as deeply rooted in the scriptures. Jordan did this last week. He reminded us that we are, like, Paul is reasoning from the Old Testament. We, our faith, is rooted in the Old Testament. And so we read it. We study it. We're deeply rooted in the word of God, which contains the Old Testament and New Testament. We are not a cult that just pops up out of nowhere. We are a people that is rooted in wonderful history that, that goes back thousands, thousands, and thousands of years. But not, So not only are we rooted, but we're communal. There is great danger in those who go and become lone rangers. They're the ones that become cult leaders. They're the ones that have people drink Kool-Aid because they think they have all that it means and then everyone dies. But Paul, though he is a zealot, though he is perhaps arguably the greatest thinker that's ever lived, has had more impact on culture and life than any other person who's ever existed, this man was still connected to the church. He was, he was accountable to them. He was under the authority of the church. He preached the message of the church. He was deeply connected to the community of the church his whole life. And what we see is our faith is not only individualistic, it is communal. With accountability and connection, 
Paul spent most of, of his days as a missionary always thinking about the communal church, not just the church in Corinth, not just the church in Jerusalem, not just the church in Antioch, not just the church in Caesarea Philippi. He was thinking about the whole church communally. And this is a beautiful thing about our faith. We have a rich amount of resources in our communal faith. The church is much bigger than this little church. You know that, right? Like Central Hope is a small, tiny little outpost of the great church that is God's. And what a beautiful thing it is for us to be connected to the church. It's beautiful. To the church not only around us, but to the church that has come before us, which is why we say, recite the Apostles' Creed. This is, this is a beautiful thing. We are a community of people, and we have one another, and we have great resources, and I wonder if you know those resources. What a beautiful thing it is to be connected to a church that is far bigger than our own. Friends, what I want you to see from this text is that there's great value in connectedness, not only to the Old Testament, but also to one another and to the churches throughout the world and throughout time. So we've looked, I've given you two nuggets, one of the faithfulness of God, the second one of the connectedness of our faith and what it means for us. But the third nugget that I want to present to you, the third valuable piece from God's word that I want to present to you today is a nugget that I'm calling replaceable. Replaceable. Now you might be going, that's pretty negative. Replaceable? How is that valuable? Well, let's look at this third scene that we see in our text today. The third scene comes from verse 24 through 28. In this final scene, we depart from Paul and head back to Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Ephesus. And in this city, we are introduced to a man named Apollos. And Apollos is described in very great detail. Let me explain some of these things. It is said that Paul, uh, Apollos is a Jew from Alexandria. It said that Apollos was eloquent and competent in the Old Testament. It says that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, that he was fervent in his spirit. It said of Apollos, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. It is said of Apollos that he would speak in the synagogues. It was said of Apollos that he was this itinerant evangelist because in verse 27 it says he wished to go to Achaia or Corinth. And finally at the end of verse 27 and in 28 we read that Apollos helped those through through grace who had believed, because he powerfully refuted Jews in public, showing that the Christ was Jesus by the scriptures. I know I left a part out about Priscilla and Aquila correcting him, and we'll get into that next week. I'm not trying to ignore that, but I want you to see something very important about the description that I've given to you of Apollos and what it means for us today. I want you to see, very importantly, that Apollos is like another Paul. The description about what he was like, where he's from, his learnedness, what he would preach, how he would preach, where he would go, mirrors the apostle Paul. It was so profound to me in seeing this that here we have another Paul. And where did he come from? We don't have this great story of how he went about uh, um, you know, he, wasn't, he didn't have a road to Damascus. But we have here a replacement for Paul. And what it tells me is that this, everyone, you, me, Paul, John, Peter, everyone is replaceable. 
because it isn't about the people. It's about the God. What did Jesus tell Peter in Matthew 16 when he was talking about the church? What did he say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Jesus says, I am going to do this. What is the book of Acts? It is a testament of how Christ builds up his church. We must not read the book of Acts as if Christ had died and he's, he's, in, he's in heaven as, as someone who's died. No, we read the book of Acts as if Christ has resurrected and is currently living at the right hand of God. And by his spirit, he's building up his church. The Lord is still living and he's still active and he's using people like Paul and he's using Apollos to build up his church. But Paulus died. And then John Chrysostom pops up, and then other men popped up, and other women popped up. And, and, and the baton of faith gets passed on from one generation by the Spirit, and the, the, the baton of faith is now passed to you and me. And Jesus says to us, the church, I'm using you to build up my church. Everyone is replaceable. Don't you know that? I can replace Paul, I've replaced it with Apollos, and I can replace Apollos with others. And he says to us, I can replace you in a moment too. Now, I think that there's something incredibly valuable to this for us today. And I, I think there's two incredibly valuable things that we must think about with regards to being replaceable. First, it's humbling. If Paul could be replaced, and he's arguably the most influential person who's ever lived, in regards to the impact that he's made on society and culture and the way we think, the way we operate, if he can be replaced, what does that say about me? You know, like, I like to read Twitter or I like to, you know, eat Doritos at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, like, God can replace me and it's humbling because I can easily begin to think of myself as some hot shot and <laughs> I can quickly be reminded I ain't no hot shot. And neither are you. Ain't none of y'all hot shots. You're replaceable. But it also can encourage us in this way. It can motivate us. And it should motivate us. And here's why it should motivate us. That the Lord himself says, I will build my church, but I'm going to build my church through people who eat Doritos at 2 a.m. in the morning. I will build my church through people that look at Twitter. I will build my church through people who don't always turn their eyes to Jesus. But I'm going to build up my church. And so we bring our faults, we bring our mistakes, and in faithfulness we say, Lord, you're using me today. I know that you're going to replace me in future generations, but today you can use me, and I'm going to do the best that I can. We are replaceable. But my friends, not only is this humbling, this is motivating. Today, we have the baton, but let us consider how we might pass the baton to those, those who replace us. This is not about building our kingdom. The church of Central Hope, the church uh, uh, at large, is not about building our kingdom, of creating the kingdom of God through our politics, through all these things. The thing, it is about glorifying God, putting up his name, and allowing the church, allowing the church to glorify God. We get to do that. We are replaceable.
And this is good news, my friends. So I've given you three beautiful nuggets of gold from a text that seems very odd and very obscure. But in this text, we are reminded of God's faithfulness. In this text, we're reminded that our faith is deeply connected to the Jewish faith and to the church at large. And this text reminds us that we are replaceable. And this is good news. My friends, I'm not asking you to buy a Nintendo. I'm asking you to take these valuable um, realities out of God's word and to apply them in your life in helpful ways. The reward for that, I think, is far greater than any Nintendo or anything that gold could buy. It's wonderful. So apply it to your life. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks to you that even in obscure passages of your word that we can find value and beauty, beauty about who you are. Indeed, when I consider Paul's word to Timothy when he said that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I see this text and I say, yep, you are faithful to that word. And so we praise you, O Lord, that you are faithful, that your word gives us great teaching and reproof and correction that we might know how to live. I ask, O oh Lord, that we would indeed take this word today and the great value that it, that it provides to us and we apply it to our life for the glory of your name and our good. Amen.